I'm Aaron Reynolds, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm Five on the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interac. For nearly 35 years, Interac has brought the most innovative payment technology to Canada. Today, Interac is building on its track record of innovation in some exciting new ways. Find out how they're changing the game at developer.interac.ca. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know more about the warp core of the USS Enterprise than I do about the engine in my van, and that's kind of a problem. So that's why I'm inviting really intelligent people to explain things to me like I'm five. Gas prices. It seems like every day someone is either taking credit for a drop in gas prices or blaming someone else for a rise in gas prices. And I got to thinking, how many different factors really play into the cost of gas at the pump? How is the price of oil figured out? Who gets to set that price? To help me out with these questions, I caught up with Robert Johnson of Eurasia Group at Canada 2020's Anatomy of a Deal event. I wanted to ask you about how the price of oil is determined. And I feel like that's like a really big question. Right. Um, so I wanted to start with who's paying for it and who's being paid. So the price of oil actually is generally set in a free market. Okay. We have OPEC. OPEC influences prices, but they don't set prices. Okay. They can influence price by increasing or decreasing their production. They just finished decreasing production last week. They announced a decrease in production, which was intended to bolster prices. Okay. Whether or not that succeeds is a combination of many other factors. The global economy. Right. uh, The weather, trade patterns, geopolitical disruptions, and other suppliers. Right. There's a whole bunch of factors that go into it. So OPEC is part of it, but generally it's a, a free market and sort of a multivariable story. Okay. So a lot, of, a lot of things end up playing into it. Yeah. And so um, if we were going to dive into some of those things, uh, the one thing that uh, we recently had an episode about uh, how, uh, how pipelines work, mm-hmm. um, how does the delivery method of oil change its price or impact its price? It doesn't play a huge factor. Generally, the cheapest way to move oil is on a super tanker. Okay. Uh, then pipelines are right there as well. Uh, and then it gets more expensive. You start looking at, at rail and trucking and other barges, things like that. Right, right. Um, but if you can move 2 million barrels on a, on a giant, what they call an ultra-large crude carrier, the cost of that can be about a dollar a barrel anywhere in the world. Okay. For a pipeline, depending how long it is and where it is in its asset life, it's pro- it could be, you know, four or five dollars a barrel sometimes a little bit more if you talk about rail from say alberta to texas for example that could be like 15 dollars a barrel okay and trucking could be 25 dollars a barrel right so if you can number one you'd like to have your oil production get to a coast and on a tanker secondly you'd like to have a long distance pipeline mm-hmm. and then the rail and trucking is a far less attractive option and all that gets passed through the end user ultimately that makes sense and so if we can sort of uh dive into what ratio is that of the final price of the barrel? Because uh, if it's a dollar a barrel or $25 a barrel, right. what does the barrel itself cost? Right. So, Ballpark. Yeah. So, so the, you know, there's one price for oil at the wellhead when mm-hmm. it's produced, and there's another at the, at the hub. And typically the hub, like you look at Cushing, Oklahoma, yep. has 80 million barrels of storage. That's just kind of like a shopping mall where refiners and other oil consumers 
can go and, and buy what they need. Okay. So the price at that Cushing location is the critical price. The pipeline element there is probably 5 or 10% okay. of that overall price. Okay. Okay. Um, if you look at the Brent oil market in the North Sea, the only transportation cost is basically bring your tanker into an offshore platform, loading it up, and it's negligible. Right. So I would say that transportation, unless you're talking about things like rail and new expensive long-distance pipelines, it's not going to be hugely material. The problem with rail is that it does start to impact what we call the net back, the amount of money the producer makes, because the producer has to deduct, deduct that cost from the, what right, they're selling right, at the right. wellhead. And so, actually, that's that's a really interesting thing that I hadn't thought about. There is the price of oil is in what the person who, who uh, either um, uh, uh, drilled it or extracted it in whatever way, right. what what they're getting for it, and then it ends up at another place that's the, the clearinghouse for that's selling right. it, and then it's what they the, get. Think of four steps. There's the wellhead price. Yep. There's a sort of large hub like Cushing, Oklahoma, or Hardesty, Alberta. Then there's what they call the rack, okay. which is where you go from storage to a terminal that those trucks come and take petrol or gasoline to the gas station. Okay. And then there's the final retail price. Right. So wellhead, hub, rack, retail. And there's a refining step in there. Is every, that... and, but every, every person there has to make a, make a margin. Right. Everybody's right. got to make some money. That's right. It. And then the, where does the refining of it happen in that That's process? right. And then you have the refinery gate price as well. Okay. Right. So... Everyone in that process hopefully is making money, and yeah. that means the margin is getting higher and higher, and the price is getting higher as you deliver to the consumer. Okay. Now, in some countries, not so much Canada and the U.S., but in Europe and in Asia, the, the largest element of the final price of the consumer is tax. Okay. So they're riding in Paris right now. They're riding because the market price for diesel is, say, I don't know, $1.50 a liter, mm. and the government has $5.50 of tax. Right. So the okay. decision to add more on top of that sets people off. Right. In the U.S., the tax, I don't know, maybe on a per liter basis, like four cents a liter. Okay. So it's very immaterial. Canada's higher, obviously, but not as high as Europe. You talked a little bit about uh, the government and tax. Is there anything else the government ends up doing that impacts the price? Yes. So I think the government can influence both final supply and final demand, right? So on the supply side, it could be anything from, you know, the um, environmental and regulatory costs and, and processes that goes around drilling okay. and, and production yep. um, to any kind of um, disruption and the ability to sort of maintain law and order. <laughs> yeah, okay. Again, not, yeah. Issue, not issue for Canada, but for yeah. like a Nigeria or Venezuela or Iraq. Right, right, right. With the failure of governments to provide security makes it much more difficult. And on the demand side, it's largely about the economy, right? So one, one choice is, is the government putting taxes in place essentially discourage consumption of fuel because right. of energy security concerns? Yeah. Or... Are they cutting taxes to encourage more consumption to try to get the economy going, which happens in some countries? Um, are they putting taxes in for clean air purposes, mm-hmm. uh, for carbon purposes? Um, and then the macroeconomic, what's the central bank doing? Anything that drives the growth of the economy, fiscal monetary policy will also impact oil demand as well. Ultimately. Okay. That so makes government sense. plays a big role on both sides. Okay. Um, are there other oh, and By things? the way, there's one more thing for government yeah. oh, on the yes. supply side, which is which areas they allow drilling in, right? So, for example, right. the Arctic, big issue for Canada. You know, right now we have a pretty restricted policy on drilling Northwest Territories, Nunavut, all that area. Mm-hmm. Same in Alaska. Trump is opening up Alaska. But, um, you know, the East Coast of the United States, there's a lot of debate over which areas should be open for drilling as well. Okay. And so then that ends up impacting um, both because of, I suppose, those transport costs. Yeah. Uh, because well, and also the amount of supply available for yeah, the market. Yeah, And okay. maybe need to import from somewhere else or if you're over dependent on production from one region 
for example, West Texas or Alberta, you might have rising costs in that region for labor and cement and steel that gets passed through the consumer as well. Right. Okay. Um, is there anything else that ends up, like, in terms of world events mm-hmm. that will impact the price of oil? So I mentioned OPEC. That's yep. certainly a key one. But when you have political turmoil in a key producer, um, that can also impact. So just let me give you a few numbers here to put this in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's a nice time to talk about this now because the world is now consuming 100 million barrels a day of oil. Okay. Nice round number, right? What, what's interesting is that um, we don't really have a lot of spare capacity, okay. right? We, we only have sort of excess production in Saudi Arabia and a couple other countries. So in other words, if we lose supply in that 100 million barrels a day because Venezuela has a civil war or there's a war in Iraq or there's sanctions against Russia, the question is how do you make up for that supply? Right. Right. If you don't have spare capacity, then prices have to go up to basically limit demand. Um, And right now, that's the situation that we're in. As the economy slows down, spare capacity might increase a little bit. But the point is the world oil market is very tight and very sensitive to these kind of geopolitical disruptions. And right now, you could talk about Nigeria, Libya, Venezuela, Iraq, Iran, Russia, all big producers, a lot of geopolitical risk. And just to summarize, with 100 million barrels a day of demand, current Spare capacity is probably about two million barrels a day. Okay, not a lot of margin. Yeah, there. that's well, yeah. that's almost nothing. Yeah. Like, I mean, two million is a lot. Yeah, but then it's only two. So it's of not the, like the market stops stops happening. What happens like any other service, right? You start pulling supply out of inventory. Mm-hmm. When inventories are going down, prices tend to rise. Right. So that destocking process can have a big impact on prices as well. Okay. And OPEC, I mean, OPEC is a thing that I have always been aware of, but I'm not entirely aware of what they are. So what is like, a, sure. what's the broad strokes picture of what is OPEC exactly? Right. So the, the count of countries that keeps changing, and Qatar just recently announced that they're leaving. We're talking about 13 producers mm-hmm. uh, that sometimes work with other non-OPEC countries like Russia and Mexico, um, that you have the big Persian Gulf producers, the North Africans, the West Africans, Venezuela and Ecuador, um, and they basically work together to try to manage the market. Right. right. If if there's too much supply, they pull back. If there's not enough, they try to increase. Um, but collectively, OPEC controls about 32, 33 million barrels a day of that 100 million. It's not okay. like they control the whole 100 million. Right. They, about a third of it. Right. But okay. they do have the spare capacity. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates have most of the spare capacity. So that means that their ability to influence prices is pretty high, depending on how they use that spare capacity. Okay. Yeah. Um, U.S., Canada, obviously not OPEC members, much more market-driven. Right. Right, right. And so ultimately, it's not a, like a shady boardroom of people sitting around and deciding what the price of oil is going to be today. Correct, yeah. It's, it's a decision by millions and millions of consumers and thousands and thousands of producers and industrial <laughs> consumers. And it's actually illegal for oil executives in the U.S. and Canada to get together and talk about prices. It's considered an antitrust violation. So it's not like the big companies are getting together and setting prices and... Uh, the antitrust laws are pretty strict, and you actually have lawyers in the room to regulate and make sure that you're not having conversations really? about price when those groups get together. So if somebody tries to bring up you know, a cost or a price, yeah. it's a, like a hard stop to the meeting. That's exactly right. Oh, yeah, they'll have a lawyer in the room who will shut that down. So I've seen that happen firsthand. So. The U.S., like 100 years ago, broke up Standard Oil, which controlled the whole thing, and that's what gave birth to sort of antitrust laws. But So, for example, now Exxon may have both the wellhead production and refining, but the refinery will buy crude from wherever they get the best, best price. It doesn't automatically come from Exxon. Right, okay. So okay. It's, that's where the market side of it really comes in. 
So generally, the antitrust authorities and structure of the markets don't really allow for a lot of controlling. That said, there's always certain, especially when there's extreme weather or there's geopolitical things happening or disruptions or the Alberta government decides to cut production, you do get winners and losers in those scenarios. That tends to be more of a short term. When we're talking about like the fluctuation in pricing, how how much fluctuation do we see? You know, in a, like on a percentage basis, yeah. it's it's really volatile. Okay, I mean it's amazingly volatile. I think that as a result of the volatility, you have a whole industry that exists to try to manage that risk, right. which is mostly financial services, but also you know trading companies and others. That just thinking about the last two months, mm-hmm. you know, October we were at eighty dollars a barrel. Yeah. Now we're we were all the way down to fifty one. Wow. Now we've sort of come back up to sixty. So okay. you're talking, you know, thirty, forty percent swing in two wow. months. Yeah. I can think about two thousand fourteen where we went down by fifty or sixty dollars a barrel in three months. Wow. Two thousand eight we went from hundred and forty seven dollars a barrel to forty seven dollars a barrel because of the financial crisis. Right. So it oil is a very volatile commodity. And it tends to be very sensitive to these macroeconomic and geopolitical events. Right. And how long does it take uh, that price volatility to like reach an end consumer? Like, yeah. how long until that hits the gas? It's, pump it's not price? that long. Okay. Because essentially, the refiners and the terminal operators and the petrol stations they just don't keep a lot of supply sitting around. Right. That makes sense. So what happens is a refiner might have two weeks of supply in their tank, then they got to go buy more. What they try to do is what they call hedging, right? Try to guess and bet. Right. Do, am I going to buy some upside protection or some downside protection? Like an insurance policy, essentially. Right. Yeah, yeah. But the problem is the market goes go the other way, and then you have a big loss at what they call a hedging loss. Right. But the bigger sophisticated companies know how to do that pretty well. And, you know, consumers sometimes can lock in electricity prices or natural gas. It's just similar to that, that, you know, it comes to some risk, but it does buy you peace of mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, are there any. Uh, benefits to either low or high prices, aside from yeah. you know people making money <coughs> on those things. What's uh, what are the other impacts of high and so low? So let me prices? take a Canadian perspective on this. Yeah. Right? I think um, Canada is a high cost producer because of the amount of energy and labor it takes to extract our production from the oil sands or from the the Western Canadian basin is higher than somewhere like Saudi Arabia or Texas. Right. So as a result. The, the market will always go to the lowest cost supply first. Right. And when prices are lower, activity for drilling and production will slow down more so in Canada than other places around the world. Okay. Now, there's ways to manage that through technology and, and innovation, you know, increasing artificial intelligence and digitization, all these things. But we're still basically a higher cost producer. That's the Western Canadian side. Eastern Canada, when prices are lower, because our tax burden isn't as high as Europe, it tends to be like a dividend for consumers. Uh. Instead of paying $100 to fill up your SUV, it might cost you $80 and $20 more to spend at the movies or a, a restaurant right, or whatever. Right, 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 So, so there, at least in North America, there's a little bit of a benefit to consumers from lower prices. Since the 1990s, Canada's been more of a petrodollar state, meaning that our oil, our dollar, our currency's values very much tied to the price of oil because of the role of oil in the economy. The U.S. has been an oil exporter more recently than Canada. Uh, but it's still not a petrodollar because our economy is much larger and more diversified. So on net-net, low oil prices tend to be good for the U.S., even though it's bad for Texas. Right. Trump understands this very well, which is why he's constantly pressuring the Saudis to increase production and try and keep prices low. Right. Because even though it's not great for Texas and Oklahoma, for the West Coast, the East Coast, the cities, 
the U.S. is still not a petrodollar more of a consumer state. Right. And so that's fascinating. I hadn't really thought about that because I, I, you know, I hadn't thought about the impact that oil would have on the actual like value of our currency. Right. And so that ends up having like a much bigger buying power <clears throat> impact for Canadians. Yeah. I mean, the, the change in Canada was that we've had a stronger currency when oil prices have been high, mm-hmm. and that's been a negative for manufacturers that prefer a weaker dollar for right, exports. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, we've, we now track other big commodity currencies around the world, South Africa, Australia, places like that, whereas the U.S. still has a whole different dynamic. Oil is not that big a part of it. Okay. So I, I think the ultimate answer is that it's complex. Yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, I want to go over just one more time as a summary those the, the places where the price changes. Right. There's where it's uh, it's brought out of the, the ground mm-hmm. or wherever. Uh, that was, what, what did you call that? that right. So it's kind of a five-step process, yeah. right? You've got the wellhead the price. Wellhead, yep. Uh, then you've got the um, the shipping cost. Yep. You've got the storage hub. Yep. You've got the refinery gate. Yep. The terminal. Yep. And then ultimately ends up in your local gasoline station. Right. Right. So there's pricing at each one of those stages and a margin each one of those stages, which is why you might have a wellhead price of fifty dollars. Right. But by the time it gets to the consumer, it's seventy five dollars. Right. Because everybody's got to right. make some money along the way. And we could talk about crack spreads and refining margins, but that might be for another time. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me sure. today. Happy to do it. Um, if people want to find out more, is there a place that they can find you or information about this on the internet? Sure. I mean, our, our website is uh, Group dot net. Okay. And I, I think that um, if you Google Energy Information Administration. Canada's working on building something like this, um, but the U.S. is a great source of energy information, of pricing and market information, which I think is EIA.gov. I would really recommend that. Fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. The other day, I received a phishing link, and it turns out I'm not the only one. According to Interact, almost a quarter of Canadians have clicked on a phishing link. If you, like me, are interested in learning more about how you can protect yourself against fraud, visit interact.ca slash fraud prevention.